This is from Matthew 5 through 7. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when Jesus sat down, his disciples came to him. And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, the peacemakers. You others revile and persecute on my account. You, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye. But I say to you, love your enemies. When you give, let your giving be done in secret. Pray then like this. When you fast, do not look gloomy. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. No one can serve two masters. Do not be anxious. Seek first the kingdom of God. Judge not. Ask, seek, knock. Your Father who is in heaven gives good things. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Beware of false prophets, in sheep's clothing, but inwardly ravenous wolves. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at this teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority. Thank you, Dana. It's a pretty quick quick version of the, the Sermon on the Mount, right? That's pretty, pretty, way to go through three, three chapters, pretty good. Um, so there's a book uh, by a guy named Steve Cuss, um, Stephen Cuss. He opens with a quote from a guy named James Thurber. It says this, All people should strive to learn before they die what they are running from and to and why. Now, when we hear that, most likely we think um, the discovery that Thurber's encouraging us is the big why, Right? Like when you just kind of hear that quote off the top, when before you should before you die, you should strive to know what you're running from and to and why. This kind of existential like discovery of what it is that makes life important. Um, but as we'll see in just a minute, Thurber's encouragement isn't so much about the big why as it is about the often unnoticed mechanics of life. We are all and ever reacting to life. We're always moving away from people, situations, responsibilities, relationships, issues, or opportunities, or we're moving towards them. We're always moving away from or towards people and situations, responsibilities, relationships, issues, and opportunities. Often, though, we're unaware of why we avoid or engage, why we close off or open up, why we shrink back or push back or fire off, or clam up, unaware of why we are not as gentle, or confident, or patient, or courageous, or godly in all our daily interactions as we'd like to be. The internal mechanisms of our oscillating evasion and determination rarely switch off or on. They run on a continuous battery. So if it's true that we're always reacting to stimuli, to people, situations, opportunities, obstacles, all those kind of things. If life is a reactive life. And 
The reason that we're, we engage sometimes and pull away sometimes is unknown. It's like a battery that never turns off. Like There is, at least in our current moment, I think, um, we could all attest, a, something always turning underneath the surface. Something always unnamed and unnoticed, only when it's effects, right? Like, have you ever felt that? Like, have you ever noticed, like, maybe you're having a conversation with somebody and they say some particular thing and it just kind of shuts you down and you kind of withdraw. But you're not really sure why. Like, you just get uncomfortable. Or, like, you run into certain obstacles and opportunities and, like, they, they energize you to jump in, um, but you're not even really sure why you get excited about that. There's always something kind of feels like churning underneath the surface. Like it feels hard to be quiet, to be still. It feels hard to kind of turn off our minds and our emotions. And so it's no wonder that we're exhausted. Burnout, according to one author, has less to do with workload and more to do with, the in, with internal and external anxiety. Anxiety that unease or uncertainty of how we'll react to whatever comes next. Anxiety is an unease or uncertainty of how we'll react to whatever comes next. A disquietness of the ambiguity of the little whys that drive us seems to permeate the air of our cultural moment, doesn't it? That's probably because anxiety is contagious. We tend to share it with others, don't we? Like when we're anxious, don't we invite others into our anxiety? And don't we pick it up from other people? We feed on the anxiety in the airways or the screens that we read, right? We also feed on it in carpool lines when we're sitting there just scrolling or when we're thinking about all the things that might be or could be or, or, or uh, should be, right? But unsure why. We, we, we feed on it in all of our post-meal conversations. We feed on it when we're just hanging around the, the, the water cooler we offer up our own anxiety to anyone who will hear. We react in our disquietness and respond to it in others, and so the cycle perpetuates and permeates, right? Anxiety, kind of like a cold once caught in a community, is hard to get rid of, right? It tends to pass through everybody. And then sometimes, by the time it gets through, it recycles back, cycles back around. Yet this nervous energy we seem to exist in within our current context and culture, right? Maybe you're thinking, this isn't me. I'm not, I'm not an anxious person. There's not things churning underneath me. Like, it's pretty clear, like, just walking out the door that for the most of us, our neighbors included, like, there's a, a, a restless energy in our world, a nervous energy, whether from fear or in anticipation. Fear of what is or what might be, anticipation for what could be or should be. But that type of energy rarely produces something we can be proud of, much less the life we desire. Nervous energy doesn't really build a flourishing life. It doesn't really build an abundant life. Thurber's encouragement, then, is not so much about discovery for enlightenment's sake, trying to answer your why, as it is about longevity and flourishing. Perhaps a rephrase would be helpful. Before the hidden anxiety of this life kills you, Figure out what's going on. Before you're chewed up, burned out by an unease that's unnamed, figure out what's going on. We won't make it too far or 
too much to too much of an end in our life if we're merely reacting to situations or spouses, events or employees and employers, opportunities or obstacles, family or friends. We won't make much of a life or get too much out of life if we're only reacting, and even less if we're unaware of what spurs our reactions in daily life. Not that we need convincing, but just in case, listen to what Edwin Friedman, an ordained rabbi and family therapist, had to say about his observations for our time and place. And and ironically enough, like he says this 30 years ago, he says, I believe there exists throughout America today a rampant sabotaging of persons who try to stand tall amid the raging anxiety storms of our time. This was 30 years ago. He thought there's raging anxiety storms of our time. But he thought not only are there raging anxiety storms, but there also seems to be a sabotaging of those Jesus might call peacemakers. Ones who stand tall amid the raging anxiety storms. It is highly a reactive atmosphere pervading all the institutions of our society. A regressive mood that contaminates the decision-making processes of government and corporations at the highest level. And on the local level, seeps down into the deliberations of neighborhood church, synagogue, hospital, library, and I can't believe he actually said this, school boards. (laughs) 30 years ago, remember? It is something in the air that affects the most ordinary family, no matter its ethnic background. And it's frustrating effect on those persons standing up and standing out, on the reviled and the persecuted, again, as Jesus might call them, is the same no matter what their gender, race, or age. It's my perception, says Friedman, that this life-toxic climate runs the danger of squandering a natural resource far more vital to the continued flourishing of our civilization than any part of the environment. We are polluting our own species. The more immediate threat to regeneration, to an after-Easter life that we started talking about, remember, back in April. And perhaps even, according to Friedman, the survival of American civilization is internal not external. The greatest threat to, our, to, to, to us living an after-Easter life is not an external threat, but an internal one. It is our tendency to adapt to this immaturity, to the environment in which we live. To lose our saltiness and cover up our light, as Jesus again might say. This kind of emotional climate can only be dissipated says Friedman, by clear, decisive, well-defined life difference. Good works that glorify our Father in heaven, maybe. For whenever a family is driven by anxiety, again, whether a family be a group of friends, an actual family unit, a community, a faith, an organization, or even a larger society, what will always be present is a failure, a nerve, amongst its members. Failure of nerve. Failure of nerve, a conditioned non-response or overreaction to the anxiety and reactivity within oneself and in others. A conditioned non-response or overreaction that lacks self-awareness and self-management is what Friedman contends pollutes the soil of life. Those places that, as Paul would say, Those places and people from which life sprouts, matures, and bears fruit that lasts. So what is the other side then? 
of the failure of nerve? What is the other side of, of a life that is lived in a polluted state? What's the other side of it? What does adapting to maturity look like rather than a life adapted to immaturity? What happens when our disquieted hearts don't fail us by determining our reactions, but operate as an early detection system, what they're actually designed for, a warning light meant to help us avoid collision or catastrophe, an indicator of, that we need to do something different or believe something different or live something different. Well, if that were the case, we might say, as Apostle Paul did, that we've learned the secret of facing whatever is or is about to be. We've learned in whatever situation, Paul wrote to the Philippians, to be content. That we can indeed do all things through Him who strengthens us. To be content, as you might remember from last week in this week's pastoral note, is not an appeal to just be happy. It's not even a censure, don't complain. But rather, it's a state of self-sufficiency in relationship with life itself. Contentment is the experience of being sufficient within, possessing the ability and competence to flourish in my life. Not your life, not life in some sort of theoretical place, but my actual life, my life in God's life in every circumstance in which my life is lived, because my life is lived in God's life, is bound in His ever-being, and in His starting, and in His finishing. That's, what's, that's not just a general truth. That's specifically true to you and to me. Contentment is a quieted heart, a non-anxious heart, a heart that knows it is bound, and at the same time, it's free to really live. At least that's what the psalmist contends. O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up, says the psalmist. My eyes are not raised too high. I haven't tried to go and live in places that I'm not meant to live in, to be things I'm not meant to be, to dream and to desire and to worry about, about stuff that isn't real yet. I don't occupy myself with things too great for me too marvelous for me, too far out there beyond my limitations to be able to control or to know. But I have quieted my heart, says the psalmist, like a weaned child content in its mother's arms. My soul is content within me. The truth, however, is that we don't always feel competent for the moment, do we? Much less able to flourish in whatever life brings. It's great that we believe it and we know it, and it's good to know it, and it's good to believe it. But it's hard sometimes to live off what we know and what we believe, to see it come to fruition in our life. And so we stay on the cycle. We run away or run towards, but we never are really aware of the to what and why. Or in truth, that our actuality of not trying to step out of the treadmill is actually a display of a discontented, unsure, and anxious heart. As Cuss contends, humans face a steady onslaught of internal and external pressures that we're not trained to handle. You could say yes and amen to that, right? Humans face a steady onslaught of internal and external pressures we're not trained to handle. We focus in those moments, we tend to focus on skill development, honing our gifts, but too often neglect the most powerful life tool, 
awareness of what is happening under the surface. We often, in those moments where we don't know what to do, we try to figure out how to do it, right? Rather than for a moment becoming aware of why is it that we feel that we don't know what to do or that we can do it. Why is contentment, like Paul said, such a secret to figure out, a thing to learn? If contentment was just being able to do the thing that you're going to do, then going after skills would be great. But contentment is actually the self-sufficiency that makes you feel like you can actually do the thing that you're, you can actually face the thing that you're facing, right? So when I feel like I can't face the thing that I'm facing, where do I run? Why do I run? Why do I push into that or pull away from that? All manner of triggers, says Cuss, reactivity and stories we tell ourselves bubble just under our conscious awareness. The source of our anxiety is all sorts of things, right, that just kind of, kind of like a boil, a boil underneath the surface. This boiling collective blocks our capacity to be present because it takes energy to manage, especially when we're not aware of it or when we're reacting unconsciously to anxiety in someone else. The truth is, like we go about, most of our life is spent trying to manage our own anxiety or the anxiety of others. We are constantly facing anxiety, whether it's yours or mine or ours. Anxiety, again, as James described, is a passion at war within us. An elevated heart rate when we want something but don't know how to get it. When we want something and we don't know if we should get it. When we want something and, we, and we're not sure if we can get it, and even more so, if we don't know what it is that we actually want and why we're actually reacting the way that we are. The same thing warring within you, the internal dialogue that you go back and forth and try to manage every day, is the same thing your spouse, your coworker, your classmate, your boss, your neighbor, your parent, all of us war with, struggle with, battle with. You're not alone in the battle. That's a good thing, right? But it also means it's two people battling inside themselves and they're battling one another, right? And we wonder why life feels so contentious. Our issue, the source of our internal battles and external disputes, says James, and I think Friedman attests to, right, is something happening within us. It's not the external manifestations, it's not the external situations of our day and age. It's an internal threat to external peace, which is why learning to be content is a remedy at the source of the issue. It allows our heart to be quieted and thus helps to quiet others. Still, as Paul tells us, contentment is indeed something that we must learn. It has to be learned. Paul didn't seem to learn it for a while, right? We don't stumble into living content, to living self-sufficiently in relationship. We mature into it. And our learning begins with awareness. But it only starts there. As Cuss points out, awareness is critical to be sure, but it's not the path of growth. Awareness is critical, but it's not the path of growth. It's simply the gate. It's our way in. We unlock it, we walk through it, but on the other side of self-awareness is difficult work that brings deeper freedom for us and those we share life with. It's one thing to be aware of what's going on in our hearts, and in the hearts of those around us to a degree. That's only the beginning. Real work, real life is built on the other side of that. 
difficult work that brings deeper freedom for us and those we share life with, deeper freedom for us and others, neighbors, spouses, coworkers, children, roommates, refugees, friends, family, enemies, and all the forgotten. And if we're honest, wasn't that the hope of a people blessed to be a blessing way back in Genesis 12? Wasn't that, that the intention all along? A people hundreds of years later that were delivered to a place of promise, a place of shalom, of wholeness, is not deeper, fuller, righteous, that is, rightly related, ordered freedom within our daily living and the daily lives of others, the expectation of a society built upon those 10 simple essentials that we spent all summer talking about. Those 10 words revealing our life good by exposing what keeps us from it. Isn't that the whole reason the Levitical laws were written? Not simply to give us things to do, but to help us build a life that has experienced deeper freedom for us and our neighbors, to, blessed, to be a blessing. I mean, we spent the last three months trying to make the case, and so if we didn't do a good job, I'm sorry, but our scriptures tell the story of such grand expectations, right? That our life together in God's life can actually change the world. That's pretty incredible. The problem for the generation between Exodus and Jesus' famed sermon on the mount that, um, um, uh, that Dana read for us earlier is the experience of a life different. A life whole and holy was for them, and may be true for us too, a matter of fits and starts. The problem is the life that they were going after didn't come right away. It was a constant struggle of trying to keep to the simple amid the complexity of a life all tangled with highs and lows, situations and discomforts, all the competing ideas in which they existed. Eventually, God's people were utterly lost in all the complexity. And remember what God revealed to Ezekiel and we saw last week, that no matter what they knew to be true, no matter how uh, how the truth was, they were affectious for the truth, they no matter their affinity for the truth, they were unable to live by reasoned faith because their hearts were lost in battles within and quarrels between. No matter what they knew to be true, no matter their affinity for the truth, they weren't able to live it. So to solve the problem, they tried to remove the anxiety that arises when you don't know what to do. And they did it in several ways. One way is they sectioned themselves off from all of society, right? And tried to create their own community away from all of the communities of society. We do that too sometimes. They isolate. Another thing they did within their isolation or within their communities then was they complicated the simple. <laughs> They produced more than 600-some rules to regulate daily living with God and others, to try to answer all the what-do-we-do-when-this-happens questions. They focused on skill development and honing their gifts of grit and precision, as Cuss suggested, maybe we still do, right? Maybe we don't have all the laws written out for us, but man, don't we go to every book and try to figure out what we need to do to, to know what to do? Knowing regulations, though, can never satisfy the heart. They also created stories, new myths to help them deal with anxieties. We're actually not the first generation to write a book on everything. An entirely new genre of apocalyptic and apocryphal collections appear in the era, in the era between the Old and New Testaments. Did you know that? There's a whole plethora of, of books that aren't in our Bible, right? Some are, but most aren't. 
that were written by the Jewish community trying to deal with the anxieties of life, believed to be built on the foundation, but not flourishing. Some of the writings expanded the imagination of what could be in God's kingdom. Some of them were an encouragement to dig deeper and to build, to build more on it. They, were, they told true stories, even if those stories weren't true themselves, right? But much more was a diversion from what was really happening within their souls and within their community. Still, no matter their dedication and consistency, no matter the vivid tales and masterful metaphors they adopted to tell them otherwise, life never flourished for the Jewish people between the centuries between their return from exile and the birth of Jesus. It didn't flourish politically, economically, structurally, religiously. So when Jesus gives his most exhaustive treaties on the kingdom of God, his most expansive talk on life with God and others in the dust of our daily duties. He does so to a people unaware of what is happening under the surface. Unaware of the hard issues that's, that's keeping them from flourishing. And also not fully appreciative of the kind of work that produces the life they desire. They're unaware of what's going on, what's keeping them from being able to live the life that they want to live, right? Some of them, would, they had answers to that. They would say it, but it was all circumstantial. Well, God hasn't sent his Messiah. He hasn't returned yet. Or it's this government. Or it's these other people within our own society that are, are against us. Or it's all these people who have moved in from over here. They have all kinds of reasons and rules, right? Some of those will get worked out in the Sermon on the Mount of what's keeping them from flourishing. But not only were they unaware of what's really happening and keeping them from living full and holy, but they also don't understand the kind of work that's going to be required to do so. And listen, there is no shortage of treasures to be mined from the three chapters of Matthew's Gospel. Again, as I think I said it earlier, the, the famed good doctor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, broke Jesus' sermons down into 60, Jesus' sermon down into 60 sermons. That's a lot. We could do that maybe next year, right? John Stott wrote a 200-page commentary on what is three pages in most of our Bibles. And there's volume after volume exists of compilations of all that we've learned from men and women in our faith history from the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, Volumes and volumes. You just Google it and you can find all kinds of books that are like collections of people who, people famous in our faith and what they've said about different aspects and things from the Sermon on the Mount. This is truly a, a chest full of great treasure, right? But for us, this time, we've actually gone to the Sermon on the Mount a couple times as a faith family, but this time, we'll be engaging Jesus' words over the next few months, intending to not repeat our history. <laughs> intending to become aware of what is happening under the surface of our attitudes, actions, and within our interactions with one another so that we might live simply to flourish, so that we might learn to live content, competent, and calm in our relational sufficiency. Again, we'd hate to repeat the history of good intentions. We'd rather be a part of something different, right? I believe an awareness of what's happening under the surface coupled with the kind of uh, an appreciation and understanding and knowing and a practicing of the kind of work that deepens our freedoms and others is what we need 
not just generally, but in our specific time and place, in our marriages, in our vocations, in our friendships and families and neighborhoods, in the decisions you and I are facing today, as well as the obstacles and opportunities before us. I believe this is what our little world needs the most. For us to be a people at peace, making peace in all the ordinary, everyday places where we make life good. A people who are not only aware, not only as Jesus said at the end of his sermon, who hear the words of the Lord, hear his words, but also walk through the gate into abundant life, into the kind of work, into doing the words of Jesus that bears fruit that lasts through all the anxiety storms we and those around us face. And so that's going to be our goal over the next few months. And so let the words of Jesus be a doorway into understanding what's going on under the surface. And the words of Jesus give us the kind of work that we need to be doing in order to not just believe what is true, but to see a life built on what is true flourish. But if awareness is, as Cuss said, a gate or a door that we open to help us do the hard work of living whole and holy, full and flourishing, then the first thing we need to do is become aware of our withering, right? If the opposite of flourishing is to wither, then we need to become aware of what's keeps us from flourishing, what causes us to wither, even if it's just in parts and pieces. We need to acknowledge the detached disquietness, the anxiousness, the chronic anxiety that pollutes our lives. And so what we're going to do for the remainder of our our time together before obviously we sing and all that kind of stuff is we're just going to let ourselves enter back into the Sermon on the Mount, a kind of quick hits version, similar to what Dana read for us. But this time, I want us to pay attention to the rate of our heart as we hear the words. Have you ever done that before? Have you ever like, noticed when you're reading something or watching something, your heart rate change? Like, something, like something about what is said, what is read, what is seen, kind of your heart rate just kind of ticks a little bit. You, you have an urge. Sometimes the urge feels like, like, I don't know if I believe that. Like it's like a, uh, I'm not, in, I'm like, I'm having trouble with it. But sometimes the urge is like, ooh, I don't like that. And then sometimes the urge, the little heartbeat is like, ooh, that would be good for that person. Kind of want to attack with it, right? Like we want, it, we we hear something that we want to use. And some, and so, so I want us to to pay attention to those things as we read the Sermon on the Mount, because when Jesus says these things, it gets everybody riled up. Right? Remember what the end of it. Like the people listening heard something different in Jesus' words. These words were powerful, unlike the scribes and Pharisees. There was something different about these words. Their words were meant to kind of shake us up a little bit and disturb us a little bit. And self-sufficiency, a contentment that we're after, is similar to the self-awareness that we're after and that both can only be found and only helpful in relationships. So what I want us to do is not just pay attention to our heartbeat, but rather ask the Spirit to examine our hearts and help us know our disquieting or anxious thoughts. To, As the psalmist would say, to see if there's any thoughts within us that wither our life or another's, that grieve life good in our life or in another's life. So, what I'm going to do, see if I can do this right here.
Maybe. All right. So I'm going to read through these sections again. Nope. Maybe. Maybe. Pause. Okay. Sweet. Okay. So when you feel your heart quicken, when you feel the, your heart raise up, whether, again, whether it's, it's you want to flee from the thing that Jesus says because sometimes it's hard to hear, or you kind of want to attack with it, whatever the kind of the motivation may be, or somewhere in between that, stop listening to me. Stop listening to the words that are being read and ask the Spirit to show you what's happening. Ask the Spirit to show you what's happening. What context this is just to be the helpful part. What context, people, places, or situations, or specific memories do these words and your feelings bring to mind in that moment? Why does Jesus' words unsettle your heart? Just ask the Spirit to show you what's going on, to do a little heart examination. Now remember, don't judge what you notice. Just notice it. Ask the Spirit to help you see it, to recognize it and what's happening, and notice that God notices it. Remember what the psalmist discovered in Psalm 73? Do you remember this from last week? If you don't, it's okay. I'll say it right now. He says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, when my soul wasn't content, I was brutish and ignorant. I was hurtful to others, banging around with others. I was foolish, living not wisely, unaware. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, God, I am continually with you. And you hold my right hand, my hand of strength. You guide me in your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to your glory. Listen, it's not about how you enter. The assumption is that you're unsettled. There's something going on underneath the surface, right? Maybe not every moment but at specific moments, and that Jesus' words will help you be able to recognize that. But it's about being open to receive and to be led. It's not about how you enter, but it's about being open to receive and to being led. So let the Spirit of truth lead you into awareness, and from there into the kind of work that might be needed to live differently, to flourish. Okay, you ready? These things will stay up on the screen, these little prompt questions to help you. But whenever you feel your heart rate kind of changing a bit. And listen, my assumption is we all have something to be anxious about. If you get into it and you don't feel anything, go through it. Okay, that's fine. Like just use the time to be quiet and to be grateful for the Lord for the place of peace that you're in. Right? That's awesome. It's a win. It's not a bad thing. But my assumption is you're like me, that when you start to hear the words of Jesus, they start to impact your heart a little bit. Right? So, take three deep breaths. Breathe in, God for me, and breathe out, God with me. God for me, God with me. One more time. God for me, God with me. Now listen and pay attention. Seeing the crowd, Jesus went up on the mountain and when Jesus sat down, his disciples came to him, and Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed, already happy, are the poor 
in spirit. Already happy are those who mourn. Already happy are the meek. Already happy are those who hunger and thirst for right relating. Already happy are the merciful. Already happy are the pure in heart. Already happy are the peacemakers. You, others revile and persecute and utter all kinds of evil against on my account. You, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, whoever insults his brother will be liable. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, but I say to you, love your enemies. When you give, let your giving be in secret. Pray like this, forgiving others their trespasses. When you fast, don't look gloomy. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. No one can serve two masters. Do not be anxious about your life. Seek first the kingdom of God. Judge not. Ask. Seek. Knock. Your Father who is in heaven gives good things to those who ask Him. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Beware of false prophets and sheep's clothing, but inwardly ravenous wolves. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. Everyone then, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the words blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears and does not do will be like a foolish man. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat and that house fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one who had authority. I'll give you a few minutes to listen to the Spirit's examination and leading. When the music begins to play, that's your cue to make your way up to the front to receive the elements of your communion. Hold on to them as you return to your seat and remain standing as we sing together. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the words, for the word. 
Give us ears to hear. In his name we pray.